0: The global political climate of the Cold War was a unique one. With the threat of the bomb, the United States and the Soviet Union were restricted to proxy wars, which neither openly admitted to, and symbolic acts, which both admitted to far too loudly and often. One of the most breathtaking results was the Space Race. On one level, it was the most elaborate and expensive spitting match ever contrived, but far more importantly, The achievements of both countries represented pinnacles of human ingenuity, courage, and learning. Today, we'll be looking at how exactly these two powers decided that pushing the envelope of outer space was a worthy goal to pursue. Let's begin. We're here on HI101 with Kevin Miller. Hello. Repeat guests. Back again. Thanks for coming back on. Thank you. And uh, we are here to talk about the space race today. Woo! And this is your choice. Yep, it's a favorite topic of mine. (laughs) Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. I feel like everyone growing up either did like dinosaurs or space or like myself, both. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm assuming that's probably the case for you
1: uh i think i let ended up more towards dinosaurs actually but uh but you I, did like, as, a, as a toddler and then growing up it was more into space yeah yeah you did have the space phase that's where i landed yeah that's where i am now
0: I, yeah i i feel like anyone that not not to not to cast any shade or anything like that but i feel like anyone that didn't have one of those two tends not to be all that uh scientifically minded or like that interested in in those disciplines particularly
1: yeah i don't want to throw too much shade at toddlers but i mean cars (laughs) come on
0: who cares (laughs) what is that it's a carpet with a map on it why are you so excited (laughs) yeah exactly no i i went through a huge space phase i was really into space and the interesting thing when you read books for kids about space is that it's all very like noble and like high-minded and very much about the betterment of society and all of this sort of, kind of flowery justifications for all these things that we did. And one of the first things you notice when you get into the actual history of it is, oh my goodness, this is the most expensive, petty contest that has ever happened. It has a
1: real air of desperation to it. <laughs>
0: it's it's kind of it's like, almost sad at certain points when you look at what peop- what lengths people went to to prove themselves against uh, each other. So. I mean, the, the context of all of this is obviously the Cold War mm-hmm. and uh, this ideological difference between uh, the United States and the Soviet Union. So we'll be looking a little bit more at the context, I think, than specifics. Although I do want to talk a lot about specifics because that stuff is cool. Yay! <laughs> but I, I, do, I do really want to put that into a little bit of context for people because we you know to jump ahead a little bit there's the whole kennedy speech about like we don't go to the moon because it's all uh, oh, speech because it's easy but because it's hard right no we go there because if we don't the soviets are going to get there first <laughs> yeah basically that's the subtext They've of got that the high speech. Ground. <laughs> yeah that's the subtext of that speech so it's really important to keep that in mind when looking at all of these developments and especially the early days of it where things get super dark mm mm-hmm. But we're you know, gonna start uh, off.
1: Neil deGrasse Tyson has joked that if we want to go to Mars, we should uh, make a spread of rumors that China is planning to go there first.
0: Oh. <laughs> He's right. <laughs> this was before there was that. a
1: Mars program in play, so I mean, yeah, maybe. exactly,
0: exactly. Man, Orion! I'm so excited for it. Every time they release new information on the Orion project,
1: oh, no, I know, I, I feel it. I, I can't help it.
0: Yeah, I feel the same like excitement that that I felt when I was you know six years old and reading those books.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So. We should probably start off with a guy named Robert Goddard. He's a pretty important guy to this whole story. Uh, An American, he was born in 1882. And from the start, he was really interested in outer space. He was interested in rocketry. And when he was 17, on October 19th of that year, he was sitting in a cherry tree. And he had this, this, or he would tell everyone later, he had this vision of um you know him being slightly higher off the earth than you know the ground and therefore moving slightly faster and how if you could get something high enough it would be moving fast enough that you could use it to kind of fling it hard enough that it would go into orbit Mm -hmm. i find that stories like this tend to be fairly apocryphal including when they come from the exact person that's telling the story yeah fair enough you Uh know you get the whole um when well, I was hey, a kid. <laughs> there's 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 a throwback. Uh Tesla uh, having the vision of the um the dynamo appear before him when he's walking through oh, the park right, in this yeah. blinding light. I mean, maybe <laughs> or maybe he just like thought it up and that's, sketched it that's on. An that's easy to say in
1: retrospect.
0: <laughs> you know, it's, it's it makes for a better story. But I mean Goddard would go on to celebrate October nineteenth very quietly and privately as a cherry tree day because he was sitting in a cherry tree when he had this vision Well oh, that's nice yeah I, well he was also a very private person i kind of feel like maybe he needed that excuse to withdraw a little bit but i digress at the age of uh 25 so 1907 and this is just when scientists are figuring out how to make functional gyroscopes like at all mm-hmm. he proposed a very advanced system for gyroscopic stabilization in 1907, which is pretty crazy. He was talking about using it for autopilot on airplanes, which oh, were wow. four years old at this point. Yeah. <laughs> he, But this is the thing. He had a very advanced mind for this stuff, right? In 1909, so at the age of 27, um, first proposals for liquid, liquid-fueled liquid rockets. Now, solid-fueled rockets have been around for hundreds of years. That's called a firework, yep. right? <laughs> like, it's just, there's no... Yeah, put an explosive in a tube. <laughs> pretty much. It could come out one end and not both. Exactly. And by 1913, so at the age of 31, he had already developed the calculus that you need to chart, like, orbital navigations, Mm -hmm. which is incredible because it's 1913. We've had airplanes for 10 years.
1: And ballistics aren't really something that are practical yet.
0: (laughs) No, he's he's essentially inventing it now. Mm -hmm. And this is at a time where people are still using, you know, primitive sightings for... Uh, artillery pieces in world war one which hasn't started yet because it's only 1913 oh man it's crazy so i mean the first flights are happening around this time as i said uh quick note wright brothers probably not the first ones to have powered heavier than air flight i know uh they were just really good at publicizing it <laughs> on the <a> future episode <laughs> Well, it, it's not. There, there's <laughs> not a lot me. to tell. There's there's uh, in 1901, a guy named Gustav uh, Whitehead. Uh, Whitehead, sorry, uh, from I believe it was Austria, had a uh, had a heavier than air flight. It was it was like steam powered. He didn't even really do a lot to back up his claim, well, and we're not so. too sure. So like that one's that's the thing. Anyone earlier than the Wright brothers were contested. The mm-hmm. Wright brothers got the news crews out there to like yeah, exactly. document <laughs> the whole thing. There's, there was a guy named Lyman Gilmore in uh, in San Francisco that, yeah, as I said in 1902, had a had a flight. Although later he would say that he didn't have a flight until 1904. So, and this was a dude who decided at like age 18 or something like that never to cut the hair of his head or his beard. He was a he was a really awesome. weird guy. <laughs> just just strange. <laughs> there's there's this picture out there. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> <laughs> cool picture. And then there's a, uh, a dude named Richard Pierce from New Zealand, who in 1903 had a flight that a lot of people say, uh, that, that's the one that a lot of people will point to rather than the Wright Brothers as being the first flight, but mm-hmm. just thought I'd mention, there are contestants out there, it's not just Wright Brothers all day, every day. day. Fair enough. While we're on the subject of flight, because really that's what we're talking about, I mean, the difference between, let's say it was the Wright Brothers in 1903, mm-hmm. and man landing on the moon is 66 years. You could be born before there were airplanes and see a guy walk on the moon.
1: Oh yeah, and you hear stories about some things, uh, things like that, where people live to be like one hundred and five years old, and they were, you know, when they were a child, they were in covered wagons. Yeah, <laughs> you know, settling in the Western United States, and they lived to see the internet.
0: <laughs> yeah, there was there's a uh, there's a video out there on YouTube of a guy who was in Ford Theater when Lincoln was shot, and he was on like a I think it's a game show or something mm-hmm. on TV. Okay. <laughs> It was like, like you know, on Jeopardy when they like go around and ask each person like an interesting fact about themselves. It was essentially that. I was
1: say, yeah, he was in the Ford Theater, and then he was also in the Ford Theater during Daniel Day-Lewis's Lincoln no. lived <laughs> to be 170 years so.
0: <laughs> ago. No, but I mean the fact that he was on TV like he, it yeah. feels so long ago, and, mm-hmm. and yeah, there's there's a bit of overlap there. So, anyways he starts get uh goddard starts getting rocket patents at in 1914 so he's filing patents for things like multi-staged rockets or liquid-fueled rockets that he hasn't built yet but he starts kind of testing them uh, around the same time he gets some he gets a a fellowship at a a university so he gets some grants to work on this stuff he tried testing one outside everyone got scared then he had to start testing everything inside Mm -hmm. where everyone wasn't afraid that they would be blown up which is kind of reasonable but you know and his main focus early on was was efficiency of thrust because there's this thing called tyranny of gravity, mm-hmm. which is basically this this issue where if you want to have enough fuel to lift a thing off of the ground to escape gravity, you also have to lift the fuel itself. Yeah, This is the rocket equation, right? Or are we not quite there yet? Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 it is. Okay. And so you have to lift that fuel as well. Until it's been burnt, but the more fuel you lift, the more or the more fuel yeah. you burn to lift it, the more fuel you need and the bigger rocket you yeah, need. Yeah, so
1: your rocket's happier so you need more fuel, etc., etc. Exactly. It's a vicious cycle. It's a
0: vicious cycle. And so he was trying to see if it was even like theoretically possible to break Earth's gravity because a lot of people were saying, no, it's not. Uh, he started applying things like um, something called uh, De Laval nozzle. From uh, it's, it's adapted from steam engines because okay. steam also works under pressure, right? Gotcha. And so you're trying to make the pressure from the steam as efficient as possible to drive whatever you're trying to drive. Makes sense. Yeah. And he managed to get things up to, you know, right. a, a 60% and above efficiency, and basically said, you know what? I think this could work, which is pretty impressive because again. It's the 19... We're talking 1917. Flight is a new concept. Mm -hmm. In 1916, he developed ion thrusters.
1: Excuse me?
0: (laughs) Yep. He wasn't even the first dude to do it. Oh, good. The first ones were in 1911. But yeah, he developed ion thrusters. (laughs) This dude was so ahead of his time. Now, an ion thruster just kind of converts electrical energy into a very uh, low thrust Mm -hmm. engine. But it's essential for things like deep space probes and things like that you're not going to get off the ground with one
1: right but in the vacuum of space you can do with minor movements you need to
0: exactly and it's big for say satellite uh stabilization to keep it in orbit for long periods of time Mm -hmm. Uh, It's in use all the time right now so again before world war one this is what this dude was doing he got some military work once the war broke out um for one thing he he effectively invented the bazooka yeah, fair enough. He he invented precursors and he, Goddard was sick a lot, uh, tuberculosis, things mm-hmm. like that. And and so the bazooka was finished up by a couple of other dudes working off of his notes. But he all the fundamentals were there. It was it was ready to go. In 1920, he was in uh, he was interviewed, and it was this big long interview. But the guy got him talking, and one of the things that he mentioned was sort of a thought experiment he was working over. Okay, namely whether or not it would be capable to fire a rocket at the moon with enough charge in it that it would produce a visible explosion to prove that it had hit the moon yeah and he basically said i think i could do it kind of laid out some numbers the entire piece that this journalist wrote was based on this statement god it wants to blow up the moon question mark well they just didn't was think it that it was even like possible oh, okay. <laughs> like, what is he talking it was about? more like look at this guy he thinks he can hit the moon yeah, what's going on here? And there was a full there was a full article written in the New York Times. Well, sorry, article. It was it was a it was an editorial, mm-hmm. but basically mocking him for not understanding Newton's laws. Oh, okay. And saying this dude thinks that you can push against the vacuum of space where there's nothing and produce thrust. He doesn't get what's going on there. Oh, I see. And this was actually a real debate at that point in time. Yeah. They weren't sure if there was anything to react against. Mm-hmm now the reality of it is that yes thrust works in a vacuum what you're doing is you know expelling mass in one direction for a change in, mm-hmm. in velocity in the other direction yep. but
1: they thought that they had to push against something
0: yes the The, the thought was that you had to actually push against something physical mm-hmm. rather than simply because essentially what you're doing at that point is just losing mass in a direction yep. it's not intuitive <laughs> yeah exactly it's not an intuitive thing so, it was just, it was a scathing editorial. This uh, guy. <laughs> coincidentally, on July 17th, 1969, so the day after Apollo 11 launched, mm-hmm. they, uh, the, the New York Times it's... wrote a retraction. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> Which, that's decent of them. <laughs> Well, considering that Robert Goddard died in 1945. Yeah. <laughs> a little late to the party. After this, uh, after this article was published, he basically stayed out of the, the public eye as much as possible.
1: And with good reason, I think.
0: He did not take it well. He There's really, really staff. didn't. He, he wrote an article himself in Popular Mechanics in 1924 explaining how thrust would work in a vacuum. He had done the experiments. He had all the equations to back it up. Mm-hmm. Basically, everyone just laughed at him some more. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks, father of liquid-fueled rockets.
1: Yeah. That's just a shame.
0: <laughs> yeah. His first... Liquid-fueled test flights were in 1921, like he'd been working with uh, uh, solid-fueled rockets before this, and they went fairly well, continued to refine them up into the 30s. In 1932, he had the first gyroscopically stabilized rocket flight, mm-hmm. which went really, really well. Uh, he, by the way, was working at, uh, at Roswell, New Mexico. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Working on lighter materials, multiple fuel tanks, uh, working towards uh, extra stages. He couldn't get a lot of funding though. He had been funded by the Smithsonian Institute, but they don't have a like, yeah. they, they only have so much money to go around and they were losing confidence in him pretty quickly. The problem with a program like this is it's very expensive and it takes a lot of tests. And the tests that Goddard were doing, he was seeing as successful, but to the guy who's actually writing the checks, they weren't looking successful at all. Mm-hmm. For example, Goddard would fire a rocket up. He would watch as the gyrosco- gyroscopic stabilizer kept the rocket, you know, nice and horizontal, and yeah. then into a nice curve to, or sorry, nice and vertical, mm-hmm. nice curve into horizontal, and then proceed to come um, crashing down, come crashing down, and explode like two miles away. Uh-huh. And Goddard would say, "That was fantastic," and That's they would "Exactly go, what I expected." What are you happened. talking about? Your rocket just blew up, dude. <laughs> yeah, it
1: came up and then it went down. <laughs>
0: Every test flight that he did, even though they were blowing up, he was learning a lot about rocket design, about what he needed to do, what his next steps needed to be, things like that. And mm-hmm. it's really hard to communicate that to investors. And being an already kind of reserved rec- reclusive guy, it was very difficult for him to make the case to people that he was kind of expecting to laugh at him anyways. Yeah,
1: I imagine at that point, even as like a on a, on a base level, it's difficult to justify paying for an invention that you fully expect to be destroyed. <laughs> Pretty much. And then doing it over and over and over again, basically <laughs> and getting yeah. more elaborate and expensive.
0: Essentially, <laughs> yeah. So he never really got the funding that he needed. I mean, the the or the uh, yeah the U.S. Navy started looking into funding him as war was getting a little bit closer. Mm. But really, he started getting sick throughout the war. Things like uh, rocket fuel or rocket-powered planes became kind of more interested, or interesting to them. Uh, enough, yeah good reason things like the bazooka was more interesting to them for because sure. tank busting seems a lot what more if we fun. just fired this thing at a guy pretty much that was a lot more interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> and he never really got the funding that he needed until you know eventually he passed away in 1945 the next guy i want to talk about is someone named werner von Braun. this guy yeah he was definitely a nazi <laughs> like for sure yeah
1: i know but but the factor as i recall <laughs>
0: Well, he joined in 1937 before it was compulsory. Yeah, that's true. He joined like hey, a... Hey, listen. <laughs> we he all make mistakes. He joined an SS squad. <laughs> okay. Which, you know, that's a little bit more than what's compulsory. No, I know. But but the science. But he was a straight up Nazi. Okay. There,
1: there was this, this thing... I'm not
0: celebrating that, clearly. <laughs> in 1934, he began working on rocketry with military applications in mind. Uh, the Nazis were not afraid to fund stuff like this. They sure. were like, rockets? Cool, let's do it and their work i mean some of it was loosely based on what goddard was doing but really goddard kind of found the best way to make a liquid fueled rocket pretty early on Mm -hmm. and the things that they were coming up with independently mostly just kind of looked a lot like goddard's work fair enough at one point in 1944 shortly before his death uh, the allies had captured a v2 rocket And Goddard took a look at it and basically went, they're stealing all of my stuff. (laughs) They weren't exactly really, but, I mean, they were coming to a lot of the same conclusions that he had. And it's pretty understandable why he would think that, looking at at all the inner workings. So V2 testing worked really, really quickly compared to... um, to goddard's work but even by 1941 hitler was looking at it and going this is like a really expensive artillery shell why should i care about this right the, the v2 rocket if you uh, you know for anyone that doesn't know it's it's essentially a very primitive cruise missile it's like the precursor to an ICBM. Mm-hmm. you are firing a lot of explosive really far via a rocket
1: yeah, you're aiming it in the direction knowing that it will come down eventually
0: <laughs> yeah later versions of the v2 had radio guidance mm-hmm. from the ground but still they're essentially given a trajectory fired off and they'll hit where they hit Mm -hmm. by 1944 though the war was going pretty bad for the nazis and hitler basically went we need something with some wow value Mm -hmm. we need some shock factor here start rolling out those v2s they've gotten a little bit better with them they're better built there's more accuracy they've got a lot of slave labor working on them so they're cranking them out pretty quickly yeah Yay, Von Braun Ooh. go. Oh man. And over 3,000 of them were fired between their sort of their, their official their official launch. I was trying to find a different word. their official launch in September 1944 and the end of the war in May 1945. Mm-hmm. Over 3,000 of them were launched. Now, half of them at Britain, half of them at Belgium, a couple in France and stuff like that. Right. They had about a 50% accuracy rate. Which isn't actually that bad considering what they were working with.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, And considering you don't have to be super close to use them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So Von Braun was doing a pretty good job with those. They had a top altitude. I mean, after the war, they, they they captured so many of these things, right? Right, yeah. So they tried firing one to figure out what their top altitude was. They got a V2 rocket to 175 kilometers. Wow, really? Yes, it was the first object to, as far as we can tell, to break atmosphere.
1: Right, uh, so I, I think that the boundary of what's considered space is uh, 100 kilometers yes. today. Yep, that's so correct. That's worth noting.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it didn't just come barely close. It it yeah, was it surpassed it, clearing yeah. a way over. Mm-hmm. So you're going. Why are we talking about a Nazi? Didn't they take care of all the Nazis at the end of the war? <laughs> yep,
1: all of them, every single one.
0: We're gonna talk about a little thing called Operation Paperclip.
1: Okay, so this is uh, Microsoft Office, right? <laughs> Clippy showed up. Clippy. <laughs> It <laughs> looks like you he need help with your war effort. He said, it looks like you're trying to build
0: an ICBM. Can I help you with that? <laughs> Let me take the next logical step here. Let's apply this template. Uh, and the template was uh forgiving hundreds of German scientists, engineers, intelligentsia of various sorts, mm-hmm. and basically going, okay, you know what? We know that not every Nazi was there voluntarily. Yeah, we know believer. some of them were... You know, working under duress and we should look into this and see, you know, we shouldn't anyone that's like definitely a Nazi, we should not forgive. But anyone that's like, you know, that we can find clean records on, mm-hmm. let's see if we can take them back to the United States, see if we can incorporate them into into our country in a, in a productive manner. Right. And they looked over, I think it was about 500 different uh, applicants and none of them were clean. So then they tweak some of the <laughs> so then they tweak some of the entry uh, criteria mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden guys like Werner von Braun were yeah. perfect for, you know, bringing into the United States this and Lever. given and given top military clearance. Oh. Cool. See this other thing happened in 1945 which is that the nuclear bomb was invented. Yep. And deployed. But the thing about a nuclear bomb in 1945 is that you need an airplane to fly over your target and mm-hmm. drop the bomb on the thing. Right. Which is really risky because airplanes can be shot down really easily. Sure again. Rockets are a lot harder to shoot down. Yep. So people were looking at the V-2 and going, man, if we strapped a nuke to that <laughs> Just thing... Just tape a warhead to it. <laughs> essentially, yeah. They're Ooh. going, hey, how great would that be? Yeah. <laughs> And they're going, well, our rocketry program kind of sucks because we only had one guy doing it, and we ignored him and laughed at him.
1: Yeah, wouldn't this be a cool idea, <laughs> Q, 30 years of fear?
0: Yeah, exactly. So they, they debrief Werner von Braun, and they go, hey, do you think you could help us out with this whole like rocketry thing? And he looked at them and went, why didn't you ask your Dr. Goddard about this?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, that guy. <laughs>
0: Von Braun had a lot of respect for Dr. Goddard. Well, it sounds
1: like they were doing very similar work.
0: Yeah, and yeah. I well, I mean, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, etc. Exactly. The V2 was essentially built off of Goddard's designs and uh, and theories. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I don't know what the debriefers said to that. That could even be ap- apocryphal. I'm not entirely sure. But I, I just really like the idea of Von Braun looking yeah. at them and being like, you dummies. To be a fly on that wall. Um... <laughs> <laughs> who now this led directly to uh, a rocket called the redstone which was essentially the first uh, icbm and the beginning as you said of, of decades of, of fear and tension mm-hmm. because the next thing that happened was in 1949 the soviets got their own bomb and while the americans had taken all of their scientists all of the german scientists in operation paperclip mm-hmm. The, uh, the Russians had still gotten a few scientists and all of the blueprints.
1: Oh, yep.
0: So they took a bunch of guys who had worked on the project but weren't necessarily top brass. Mm-hmm. They took the blueprints. They re- reverse yeah, engineered replicate it.
1: replicate this?
0: Yep. Under a guy uh, named Korolev, Sergei Korolev. And by 1948 had a working replica, which, to be honest with you, was slightly better than the V2. Yeah. They did a better job. One thing about reverse engineering things is that you've got nothing, really. Yeah. So that when you so when you come across a design that's bad
1: Yeah, it's it's easy to fix before you go into production. You're
0: essentially troubleshooting things from the get go. Yeah. So their uh, their version of the uh, of the V two was was much better. And basically in nineteen fifty three, they took all those Germans that they had been getting to help with their rocket program and went, We know how to do this now, you go back to Germany. Yep. Bye. Bye. Thanks. <laughs> Don't with door hit you on the way out. And that's the moment when the Soviets basically locked down their entire rocket system. They never actually referred to Korolev by name in any sort of official dispatch. They just uh, referred to him as the chief designer for security purposes. Oh.
1: Yeah. Mysterious.
0: Mm -hmm. Very mysterious. And he had had some experience with rocket planes uh, during the war, but he'd also been in some political trouble. So it's interesting that they, they chose him for the project. However, that being said, they couldn't have possibly chosen a better guy. He was extremely well qualified for the job. He was a very gifted rocket designer. Mm-hmm. And if anyone was going to challenge Wernher von Braun for just sheer skill in, in terms of uh, rocket design in the space race, this was the, guy. this was the guy. Korolev was a, I mean, for what you could find about him anyways, was a, a brilliant man. So at this point in time, both of uh, uh, both the Soviet Union and the U.S. are firing rockets as high as possible. You know, now that they can breach atmosphere, they're taking pictures of the Earth from, you know, outside the the actual atmosphere. These are called sounding rockets. So they're sending them up with with meteorological instruments attached to them to see see. what they can see, basically. So figure out where exactly the atmosphere ends, figure out, you know, what temperature is in space. Yeah, I don't know.
1: They have no idea. They've never been
0: there. They've never been there before. So, this is, there's some groundbreaking scientific stuff that happens here Mm -hmm. that is really boring in terms of space race stuff. So, it doesn't get covered a lot, unfortunately.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. This isn't a science (laughs) podcast.
0: And I, I, you know, I would love to get into it. People don't want to listen to it for the most part. I know. Sorry, Miller. I know you want to listen to it. <laughs> I, I would listen to it, but that's fair. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> they wanted to know what temperature it was in space. They found out the temperature. Yeah. Like, that's that's how they this would it. go on. They on, nailed it. Really got it. This is how it would go on so many, so many different issues at this point. But by 1955, both U.S. and USSR had powerful enough rockets that they figured they could achieve orbit. Mm-hmm. On July 29th of 1955, the U.S. press secretary announced that between July 1957 and the end of 1958, they would have satellites in orbit. Four days later, (laughs) a Soviet scientist at an international conference said, we should have a satellite up there in the near future. Mm -hmm. Game on. Yep, And thus the space race started, because all of a sudden, it's a matter of international prestige, but Mm -hmm. it's not just about showing off. It's a veiled, well, it's not even really veiled, it's a threat. (laughs) It is absolutely a threat, because if you say, I can get something into orbit, you're actually saying, I can hit anywhere on Earth.
1: Mm -hmm. I can hit anywhere on Earth if I get something up there that I can stay there for a while, I can take pictures of anywhere on Earth.
0: (laughs) Yes. The implications of having things in space is is terrifying from a military or intelligence standpoint. Mm -hmm.
1: It's the ultimate high ground.
0: Mm -hmm. I can shoot nukes down from space. I can take pictures, as you said, of anything that you have up there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Nuclear warheads that will like rocket powered come back down from orbit. Not just drop out of space, but actually like yeah, powered come down speed. from space.
1: Yeah. <laughs> terminal velocity.
0: yeah. It's it's scary stuff. And and that's and that's the thing politically about the the Cold War is that neither side is saying I'm gonna nuke you from orbit. Mm-hmm. They're saying things like, they're, "They're saying things about you know our technological advancement is such that we you know we're we're doing these things that are you know they're they're scientific in nature and we're discovering things that are important for you know ex- exploration or discovery reasons and you know things like yeah, that."
1: But if you're willing to look even a little bit deeper into it, you're like, "Huh." Nobody was fooled by these. Yeah, overtures. exactly.
0: Nobody was fooled at all. The biggest thing holding back the United States at this point in the race was President Eisenhower. I don't know if you know anything about Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, a bit. He was a four-star general in World War II, began a, a political um, career afterwards that is really interesting because one of the things that he's best known for is his, uh, is his speech leaving office, in which he warned against runaway spending and the rise of the military-industrial complex. Hmm. which is interesting coming from a four-star general. Yeah. But basically he said, listen, I've been president for a while. You guys need to worry about this. Don't let the military spending take over the U.S. economy because that would be bad for everybody. And then, well. and then everybody listened and everything's been okay ever <laughs> yep. since.
1: What a perfect society we live in. <laughs> Let's not rag on Eisenhower too hard. He tried real hard. He, he did try. I'm not blaming him.
0: Absolutely not. He had two major concerns about the, the space program. One was, there's this issue of, where do international sovereign airspace rights end?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question.
0: Because if I take, if you're the USSR, and I'm the US, and I send a plane and I fly it over you Mm -hmm. at, uh, you know, a standard cruising altitude of 30,000 feet, I am violating your airspace, and if you warn off the plane and it doesn't turn back, you have every right to shoot it down. Mm Mm-hmm. That would create a bit of an international incident, but you, under your rights, it's violating your sovereignty without your permission. Yeah.
1: So, what height does a country have sovereignty over?
0: I mean, it's the same issue as, as mining rights, right? How fair, how deep yeah. below the earth does your property or do your property rights extend? Yeah, and that's still an issue all over the world. I'm trying
1: not to quote that it will be blood. <laughs>
0: exactly. So Eisenhower was going. Hang on. If we if we're up there first. And we fly something over the USSR, mm-hmm. are we violating their airspace? And everyone looked at him and went,
2: uh...
1: Yeah, it doesn't matter what your answer is, it matters what their answer is.
0: And, and he's looking at it going, you know, they're going to answer in whatever way best benefits them.
1: Yeah, and and B, can they do anything about
0: it? Well, that's, that's the other issue, but one of the things they can do about it is use their and newly developed ICDMs. Else,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Enough. It's.
0: it's I, I mean, we're, we're in 1955. Yeah. Anything can happen. I can't happen. really
1: shoot down your satellite, but I can shoot other things.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely, they can. Or, say, I don't know, invade Germany. Yeah. Or, you know, there's there's a whole host of options for USSR. Sure,
1: yeah. You don't want to poke the bear, so to speak.
0: Now, you know, for us looking back, we know that the USSR was incredibly unlikely to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. But it's a valid concern on Eisenhower's part. That's never been defined. Depending where... on your age,
1: you've been afraid of them your whole life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, do you really want to take that chance?
0: Yeah, I, I, I really can't blame Eisenhower for being cautious about that. The other thing is that the Redstone rockets that they were working with at that point were developed out of V2s. Mm-hmm. They were designed to carry nuclear warheads. And the program was going into further development to uh, become more advanced ICVMs. Mm-hmm. Eisenhower was looking at this going we can't really make the claim that it's not a military action if we're using military hardware. Yep. So he started developing, well he started developing mm-hmm. Ike sat down <laughs> oh, with the right, drawing exactly. board.
1: In the middle of the night no this will not stand and he popped out of bed and in his dressing gown and grabbed a screwdriver. <laughs>
0: Went over to started the presidential hammering.
1: drafting table. Yeah, started hammering sheets of plywood together. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make my own rocket. <laughs> presidential rocket
0: with chewing gum and Sp- gumption <laughs>
1: space force one uh he
0: he commissioned the building of uh the vanguard rocket which was a, uh, expected to be research only it was going to be scientific missions only that's an awesome name a vanguard yeah, yeah i love it so the idea was that vanguard would start off doing sort of uh, sort of standard sounding rocket missions checking upper atmosphere stuff Mm -hmm. and move on to sort of research satellites that would have no military applications whatsoever he was looking to completely separate anything to do with icbms and anything to do with space exploration just to be as above board as possible yeah
1: and he's trying to at least at face value make it as scientific as possible
0: (laughs) exactly because again this is a guy who not only lived through world war ii but had to make all the hard calls of world war ii right I can see how that would make a man a pacifist.
1: Yeah, that's fair. War changes you. Or,
0: well, I mean, pacifist maybe is a little strong for yeah. Eisenhower, but you know he doesn't want to poke the bear, yeah. I think, as we've already said. Mm-hmm. So they're held back by this development of the vanguard. They're held back by these worries about sort of international con- uh, consensus on what putting a satellite over enemy airspace would be. And the Soviets, they're just full or they're going to town they're ready mm-hmm. we get into this weird era where each side is trying to figure out what the other side is up to mm-hmm. and being wrong a lot <laughs> in 1956 september 20th there was a uh, there was a test flight of a jupiter rocket the jupiter missile was for a long time the standard icbm of the the united states the, uh, the Jupiter was a successor to the Redstone, and it was just in development at this point. Mm-hmm. It was a test flight, so it broke the atmosphere but came back down in the Atlantic where it was destroyed. The Soviets thought that it was a failed satellite attempt. I see. And so they poured on the gas.
1: Yeah, they, they got a fire lit under them.
0: Yep. Then there was this rumor that came around that the Americans were planning on publishing a breakthrough study in. Uh, journal that was specifically for well anything to do with potential space exploration so it was okay. a like it was it was like uh as if it was a you know scientific well not scientific american maybe but um, one of the like scientific journals but specifically for things like rocketry or you know sure. j- just uh, a- aerospace yeah, science yeah so there was this this rumor that it was coming around uh, that was coming around that they'd be publishing a study on october 6th in, it like in the october 6th uh, edition and so Korolev expected on October 4th or 5th, like a day or two before, oh. the Americans were going to launch a satellite mm-hmm. and then have this article that ready was in there go. ready to go. Mm-hmm. The article wasn't about no. a secret uh, satellite launch, obviously. Yeah. Spoiler alert, not that. Not that. So, expecting an October 4th or 5th launch, Korolev. Burn the midnight oil. Burn the midnight oil. Made he said, we himself, need to them. launch. We need to launch on October fourth. Mm-hmm. They used a a satellite that was terrible compared to the one that they were planning on sending up. Okay, Sputnik was not Sputnik, Sputnik was not great.
1: Nope, it Sputnik, did what it needed to do.
0: Sputnik, well, yeah, absolutely, they it
1: definitely did. accomplished a goal.
0: Sputnik was a little under two feet in diameter. Mm-hmm. Yep. It was one hundred and eighty-five pounds. Wow. So you and I and another dude and a pack and a case of beer could get that moved around pretty easily. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. It had two radio transmitters broadcasting on different wavelengths. Mm-hmm. It had a few uh, it had a few antennas. It had a damage sensor to see if it had been hit by micrometeorites. Mm-hmm. And it had a barometer, basically a pressure sensor to check whether or not it was outside of the atmosphere. Okay. It was launched on a rocket that had
1: I was going to say, that was straight up an ICBM, right? Like, yeah. It was on a it was on a rocket. There was no, we need to make something that doesn't look like a rocket. Oh, no. <laughs> it was a straight up rocket.
0: In fact, I, you know, I, I, I couldn't find anything definitive about this. I would imagine that the Soviets were as interested in going, like, look what our military rockets can do well, as anything else. Yeah. And,
1: I mean, everything that followed.
0: <laughs> the rocket had been stripped down. It was not, like... Oh, of course. You know, it was it was a pretty it was a pretty bare bones rocket. It was just enough to get it into orbit, mm-hmm. but it managed to do so. And on October four, or yeah, October fourth, nineteen fifty seven, Sputnik uh, orbited the Earth. It took about ninety minutes to go around. The Soviet team did not celebrate until it came back around the first time yeah. because that completes one that, orbit. That is an orbit, yes. And uh, and the Americans got Ooh, real, lost,
1: real scared. Lost their damn minds <laughs> with good reason. <laughs>
0: Because the Soviets had just completed the first milestone in the space race, Mm -hmm. which was to create an artificial satellite going beep, beep, beep all night long. Yep. Now, the cool thing about this podcast, about this uh, topic, I should say, is that it's modern enough that I think we can put in a lot of recordings, which I'm really down for. Oh, yeah. So you want to throw some Sputnik beeps in here? Absolutely. So that's... That's what everyone was hearing over there, shortwave like AM receivers, because this was like 1957, and people did that stuff. At best,
1: you know what that is. Yeah. At worst, you don't, and you're terrified.
0: Oh my goodness, can you imagine? I mean, obviously it was all over the press, but
1: yeah,
0: it's just this weird beeping signal coming from the ether, and mm-hmm. who even knows what's going on. The beeping was mostly there. I, I mean, there was some coded there was some coded information coming back scientific uh, information telemetry stuff like that mm-hmm. but a lot of the reason that they had it broadcasting on such a wide span was to go like hey guys what's up <laughs> you hear
1: this <laughs> little respect
0: please and with that the uh the soviets they kind of they kind of took the first they drew first blood let's put it that way yep all right well let's take a quick break and we'll come back to the rest after that done <laughs> Hey guys, there are a couple of places you can follow HI101 around the internet, and I know for a fact that there are more people that listen to this show than have followed me there, so don't you all play coy with me. Uh, There's a Facebook page, facebook.com slash HI101podcast, and it'll just take you a second to click like there, and that'll show all of your friends that you found a super rad new podcast about history that they would probably love too uh you can also head on over to twitter and follow me at hi 101 podcast to keep up on the latest stuff for me it'll be fun i promise and also i would really appreciate it thanks and enjoy the second half okay we're back on hi 101 here with kevin miller hello and sputnik's up there beeping about beeping away yeah or ah depending on your point of view <laughs> Which hemisphere are you in? Um, How scared are you right now? So so scared, and it is terrifying because as we talked about, something in orbit means things can come out of orbit yep. wherever they want. Things tend to come out of orbit, yes. Yeah, it's it's bad news. The Soviets decided to follow up as quickly as possible on Sputnik. Now, originally, the plan for Sputnik Two was the you know more advanced scientific probe that they had been planning for the first satellite all along right but then khrushchev came and said you know what the 40th anniversary of the soviet or the, of the red revolution is coming up i want another launch in honor of that okay and they right. went oh man <laughs> ah nerds <laughs> another rush project yeah. great we'll never get this off ground. <laughs> so they very hastily built a capsule mm-hmm and shoved a dog in there.
1: Oh no, I know this story.
0: We don't need to get into Laika too
1: much. Hey guys, I found this dog?
0: <laughs> they had spent months training strays that they had found on the streets of Moscow. Uh, Laika was chosen for her particularly even demeanor. Uh, they put her up there with a bunch of probes, stuck to her, see how a living <laughs> being could survive in space. Because the medical community was kind of... they They... Well, they had no idea what it would do to a living thing.
1: Yep. Are are the topics that i choose, like, the ones that include the most famous scientific animal deaths?
0: (laughs) So far, you're two for two.
1: God. (laughs) It's not on purpose, I swear.
0: I'm sure you weren't thinking of this when you picked it. I mean, to be honest, I probably could have skipped Laika, but this is important because it's the first living being other than possibly some microbes Mm stuck to Sputnik 1, which is, to be honest, the way it was rushed out, kind of likely. Probably,
1: yeah. Um, There might have been a dog
0: in there, we don't know. (laughs) I said microbes. I know, but who can
1: say? (laughs) Uh, So anyways... (laughs) Where's my dog?
0: Laika survived the launch, but didn't survive that much longer. There was a failure in the life support, and uh, she most likely overheated and suffocated. Now, the official party line on Laika was that... She survived for several days in there doing just fine, Mm -hmm. and eventually, before the oxygen ran out, they gave her a lethal dose of cyanide in her food so that they would euthanize her because it was kinder than letting her suffocate to death, which is what actually happened. Mm -hmm. There was never any system in place to bring Sputnik 2 back to Earth safely. That dog was on a one-way trip the whole time. Yep. That's upsetting. Mm Mm-hmm. This also brings to light one other feature of the of the Soviet program that we're going to run into a lot which is that they lie like crazy about their stuff. Yeah. No jokes, they will tell any story that sounds good for them and they will not reveal the truth of what happens sometimes until the fall of the Soviet Union. Other times, you know, the truth kind of comes out, but in in this case it was it was quite a few years before We found out what really happened to Leica, which is just very sad, and we can get off of that now. (laughs) Now, so that was, Sputnik 2 was November 3rd. The Americans didn't manage to have anything together until December 6th, when they finally had one of those Vanguard missiles ready to go. Right. So they had it set up on the, the launch pad, and they decided, you know what, we are going to do a live broadcast of this launch so everyone can see how awesome we are. Oh, nice. It blew up. Oh, it exploded on the launch pad. It's not crazy awesome. <laughs> no, it wasn't great. Whoops. Yeah. Live TV. Which movie is it that has all of the rocket failures right at the beginning? Is that the right stuff? I think it's the right stuff.
1: If, if it is, I haven't seen it. Oh, you
0: should watch the right stuff. It's a great movie about the Mercury uh, program. I, yeah, I, I recommend add, it. Add to the list. <laughs> add it to the list. There's there's this just like montage of of rocket failures. I'm sure you can find something similar on oh, YouTube. I'm sure. But. A lot of rockets blew up in the course of this space race.
1: Yep, this one just happened to be on live TV. Rockets, TV, right? Yeah, we're yes, that yes, age. on TV. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. No, everyone saw it go down. We're talking about making as much explosive force as possible and then just pointing it in one direction and hoping for the best. Rockets are really terrifying the more you think about the actual mechanics of oh, what's yeah. going on there. <laughs> mm-hmm. The fact that more didn't blow up is actually kind of astounding.
1: Yeah, you're basically strapping a payload to an explosion. Mm-hmm.
0: It's it's really scary. Those guys are brave. Which is controlled in finger quotes. <laughs> Ooh. So this failure, that was bad for the, the PR for the United States. Mm-hmm. It was super bad. There were names like uh, Dudnik, Flopnik, Staputnik, and my personal favorite, uh, Kaputnik, mm-hmm. which is pretty good. That's pretty good. At an address to the UN, the um, the uh, Soviet delegation offered uh, aid to the United States under a Soviet program for technical assistance to backwards nations. Oh, <laughs> oh, sick burn! I mean, which the Russians... is not what the UN is for.
1: <laughs> more o- I'm sure it more a lot. often than you'd think. Yeah, I'm sure it happens a lot. Ugh politics
0: <laughs> so i mean the russians were ahead for a long time this is probably the sassiest they got about it <laughs> which i'm super into yeah that's pretty funny <laughs> <laughs> finally january 31st 1958 so we're talking like two to three months after the after sputnik itself mm-hmm. there was finally a, a successful launch of a satellite. On a Redstone rocket, by the way. Not mm-hmm. uh, not a Vanguard. Vanguard didn't really get anywhere. It just doesn't work. And you'll see that every once in a while. Sometimes rocket programs just don't work out. Sometimes they're not good enough. Uh, technically, they can be the best design programs and they're just not good enough. Right. At this point, they were kind of over the whole, let's not use military rockets because the Soviets had just used two. Yep. If anyone raises a stink about it, at least they could point they at them and first. say they started they it. They started it. Which... Is also a thing that the UN is totally for. <laughs> Which is an excuse you can use for anything. <laughs> especially in the UN. That's what I'm saying. They are crazy immature over there, especially in the 50s. Oh boy. Yep. Hooray for the UN. They launched Explorer 1. Remember how small Sputnik was? Two feet. Yep. Explorer 1 was the shape of a tiny missile. Okay. So it's like really long and skinny. hmm It's... It, it was maybe five feet long. Okay. And maybe, I'm gonna say eight to twelve inches in diameter. Oh wow! It weighed a total of thirty-one pounds. <laughs> wow! It had a micrometeorite gauge to see if it was, you know, the hull was pierced for any reason, mm-hmm. and it had a radiation detector.
1: <laughs> That's it.
0: <laughs> yep. And well, and an antenna to broadcast Got information because it had no. Uh, storage capabilities so it had to broadcast all of the data that it got it yeah. uh, that it collected constantly for everyone to hear so you're welcome Soviet Union yep. for all of this free data enjoy mm-hmm not a great start nope it was very rushed it was very much a follow-up It was, how fast can we get something orbiting the Earth? Because, boy, do we look bad right now.
1: Something, anything, please.
0: They're they're taking our lunch money at the UN. We've got to stop this. (laughs) Essentially, yeah. Finally, April 2nd, Eisenhower established NASA, began developing the Saturn rocket system. They took over the U.S. Air Force Man in Space Soonest program. Man in Space Soonest. What's the acronym for that?
1: MISS.
0: MISS. I wonder who thought of that one. Hmm. Huh. Huh. Just going to leave that right there. Her. No further comment. Yikes. Renamed it the Mercury Program. Yep. Good plan. <laughs> now, this is notable because, again, we see Eisenhower going, hey, this is a military program right now. Let's give it civilian oversight. It will be a government agency, but it will be a civilian government agency, not, yeah, not a military one. hmm he was all about keeping that military-industrial complex from happening. That's completely fair. Sorry, Eisenhower. Yep. We did bad. Uh, so that program began uh, November 1958, and the first thing they did was select seven candidates and start developing, for, start training them and start developing a capsule that they could ride in. Oh, okay. Because life support, tricky stuff. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to get a guy up there. It's another guy to keep him alive and bring him back down. True. On... March 23rd, 1961, there was the first casualty of a space program. A uh, Russian cosmonaut in training, Valentin Bondarenko, burned in an oxygen-rich environment. Yikes. Uh, It took him eight hours to die. Oh! Yeah. So that was the first astronaut fatality. No one knew about it in the West until 1986. Again, we've got this secrecy going on, right? Jeez. So, you know, just wanted to give a shout-out on that one, because not only did he die horribly in the service of what at least eventually turned out to be a very beneficial program, Mm -hmm. uh, his sacrifice was not noted by anyone because of the posturing that was involved in it at the time.
1: Oh, I see. They just swept it under the rug.
0: Well, it looks super bad if you kill a guy in your program. (laughs) Generally. (laughs) And really, all of this was about propaganda. Again, Mm -hmm. it's not just... You know, at this point, it's gone slightly beyond the whole ICBM factor, right? Now we know that, you know, we can put a missile up there and bring it down yeah, anywhere we want. they both can. <laughs> Everyone can. But all of a sudden, there's this this posturing of like, well, okay, well, you put up a satellite. Well, I put up a dog on a satellite. What are you going to do? Yeah. Well, I'm going to put up a guy in a satellite. Like, it just, it, it keeps getting um more and more escalated so
1: so did the soviets admit that they sent him up at all or did they no he didn't go
0: up he was in training
1: oh I see. this was on the ground yeah oh that's even worse somehow
0: yeah it's there's nothing good about that story no he was in training because let's talk about the science of life support for a little while in general you want to carry as little stuff with you up into space as you possibly can Mm -hmm. one of the main things that you need to bring with you is oxygen because you need oxygen to burn right and you're burning a mix of oxygen and uh, hydrogen, usually. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense to ship a bunch of nitrogen up there, which is a, an inert gas, mm-hmm. in order to make a mix that's close to Earth's atmosphere. Right. When you can put someone in a 100% oxygen environment and have them breathe and eventually take that oxygen and burn it anyways. Right. Yeah. So you can incorporate your fuel system and your, your life support system And save a few pounds, which are so, so precious because of the tyranny of gravity. Right. That's that rocket equation that we talked about Mm -hmm. earlier. So both programs are working on basically a 100% oxygen assumption. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you need to do to get ready for that is train in an oxygen-rich environment because you can't just walk from a regular room into an oxygen-rich room and expect for it to go just fine, right? So you have to get get used to working in 100% oxygen in order for your body to sort of acclimatized to working in that environment right that's what this guy was doing he was in a tank full of nothing but oxygen learning how to deal with that environment just physiologically Mm -hmm. so the russian manned program was called vostok okay uh it's kind of the equivalent of mercury essentially it was just a hey let's get a guy up there that was pretty much all that was really necessary for that design criteria yeah
1: so get a guy go up there and then something might happen and then
0: bring him down then, uh, fingers crossed yeah we'll see something something profit uh so the capsules were very very crude that they were sending these dudes up in or preparing to send these guys up in finally in 1961 on April 12th 1961 Vostok 1 launched carrying Yuri Gagarin and uh he was the first man in space space hero space hero yuri Gagarin. he was up there for 108 minutes and he was not in control of his spacecraft at any point in time nope because again medical science had no idea what this would do to a guy and that's because this has never happened before i can understand why they'd be cautious hence hero (laughs) so they well yeah absolutely an incredibly brave man uh i was reading that prior to launch his heart rate was at 64 beats per minute. Wow, really. Which is lower than a lot of people which is very sitting calm. <laughs> sitting on their couch eating Cheetos and watching, huh? You know, nerves of steel. He, oh, I mean, all of these guys were military test pilots, right? Sure. Like they were they were used to dealing with high stress, very difficult emotionally, physiologically such situ- uh, situations, right? But still to be the first guy to leave Earth's atmosphere with no control over anything once you do it. He <laughs> Could have gained control of his capsule by reaching over, pulling out an envelope, pulling out a code from the sealed envelope, punching it into his computer, and then he could have taken control. Really, that was the safeguard in case like something was happening with the attitude of the craft, but he himself was okay. Ah, I see, yep. Because you're looking at two, you're, you're you're looking at a couple of different conditions. Either everything goes fine, mm-hmm. the craft goes up and comes back down, and Yuri Gagarin is fine. Mm-hmm. Everything's great. Uh, the craft goes up, something happens to Yuri Gagarin, and you want the craft to come back, so it's still automated, so it still comes back. Well, right. at least you get your spaceship back, and the Americans don't get their hands on it. That's yeah, it's just a mess inside. That's terrible, but yeah. it, you know, you don't want that to happen, but let's plan for contingencies. Right. And then the third option is he gets up there, he's doing fine, but something happens with the spacecraft. That envelope's only there for condition C. I see. Right? Uh, and then we hope he gets back... Because something's gone wrong, and good luck. It's a bad situation. Ooh. So he could have taken control. He didn't. He was only up there for two hours. The flight lasted 109 minutes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the Vostok craft were designed to land on land. Mm-hmm. Um really? the, the American... All all Russian ships, are or none of the Russian ships were designed for water landings. Wow. There's a couple that have done them, but... The thing the thing there is that when you look at the recovery potential for the United States, mm-hmm. you go, well, their navy has control of basically the entire Pacific, dump them in yeah. the Pacific which is almost 50% of the world's coverage That's completely and fair. one of our aircraft carriers will pick them up. Mm-hmm. When you're Russia, you have limited access to the Pacific, barely any access to the Atlantic, and you have 11 time zones worth of land. Yeah. Well, aim it at our giant bulk yeah. of landmass. Probably hit Russia. We'll probably hit Russia. <laughs> we'll probably hit Russia. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that didn't come out until 1978 is that the Vostok ships, because, I mean, they're not spreading around their ship designs. Right. These are state secrets. Of course. About seven kilometers above the ground, Yuri Gagarin ejected from the capsule and parachuted down the rest of the way without his ship, which crash-landed into the ground. Wow. That was standard operating procedure. That That was standard (laughs) operating procedure for the Vostok capsules. Any Vostok mission, that's what they did. what
1: speed would that have been at? Uh, I couldn't
0: tell. you. It would be incredibly high speeds, though. Jeez. Nerves of steel. Nerves of steel. Here's the reason that they didn't tell anybody besides the whole state secret thing. Mm -hmm. According to the body that keeps records of flights, so say things like, you know, the first transatlantic flight or, you know, stuff like that, uh, the pilot has to land with the craft in order for the record to stand. yeah. So, if you tell people that the guy had to eject and land separately from his capsule, Mm -hmm. technically that flight didn't count as the first manned flight around the world. Fair enough. Now, if anyone wanted to, you know, if anyone came to me at this point in time, 2015, and said, yeah, that didn't really count, I would be like, no, what are you talking about? It counted. It it counted, (laughs) let's face it. But the issue here is that we're, again, we're back to this this kind of prestige contest between the two nations.
1: Yeah, or it's meaningless unless they get the record. <laughs>
0: yep. We're, we're past ICBMs. We're into, and I, I think I was driving at this earlier, we're into um, which country is greater. And this this greatness is set by these arbitrary targets, yeah, that milestones. these milestones that they've set. And the current milestone was who gets the record for first manned orbit. Well, the Russians just did it. Mm-hmm. and. You know, the body who keeps track of those records said, yep, that, this one goes to Russia. Uh, communism managed to produce the first man to circle the globe. And it, it was worth it. Again, the, the capitalism
1: the, survives to this day.
0: <laughs> the, uh, you know, if you ask anyone who the first man to circle the Earth was in space, it's Yuri Gagarin. No one's going to fight you on that. Nope. So, again, another big blow to the U.S. Uh, space program. In... May of the same year, May fifth. So less than a month later, Alan Shepard became the first American in space on Freedom Seven. Uh, again, fired up there in a Redstone rocket. Mm-hmm. So they haven't managed to develop the um, the the system that they they would use for the rest of the program, the uh, the Atlas. They're still basically strapping them to what they would normally use to deliver a high nuclear payload. Yep. So. That's probably not scary at all. He's a rocket man. Now, keep in mind, Shepard did not actually orbit Earth. He broke atmosphere and came back down.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: In Freedom 7, the U.S. names for spacecraft. Uh, well, we'll get, to, we'll get to a couple of more as we, as we go. Mm-hmm. Now, he didn't orbit, but he did have manual control of his craft. So he was the first person to control a craft in, in outer oh. space. And this is where we get into this weird PR battle between the two of them. Where the Soviet Union's going, well, we had the first guy in space and the, the US the says pilot. "Yeah, we had the first guy to pilot a craft in space, and they're both correct. yeah. Technically, the best kind of correct, mm-hmm. I've heard. And then uh, Gus Grissom, his, his real name is Virgil, which is why he goes by Gus. Gus Grissom did the same uh, flight in July in Liberty Bell 7.
1: Okay, I'm sensing a theme here.
0: <laughs> they're all called 7 in honor of because these are just call signs, they're not like mission designations. Right. They're all called uh, 7 for their call signs in recognition of the 7 astronauts in the Mercury program. Uh, okay. Yep. Now, each of these missions, the way they would do this is they would send up an unmanned capsule to make sure that it worked properly. Then they would send a chimp in the capsule to make sure that you could get a living being up and down safely. Right. And then they would send a guy. Mm-hmm. Just to make sure that everything was working okay. The USSR also extensively tested with animals to uh to test out life support before they sent up uh human beings so that was in july uh was the was the repeat mission to show that it was repeatable mm-hmm. and then august 6th Thawstock 2 went up to repeat the uh the orbit of the earth so it was the second orbit of the earth mm-hmm. and he used manual control again this time wow. so again it's this back and forth right escalation yeah. mm-hmm. at, at this point in the in the programs you kind of go okay so we've got Guys in space. Now what? There were two things that were kind of being talked about by the scientists involved as next steps. Mm -hmm. One was the establishment of a long-term space station in orbit around the Earth. The other was a trip to the moon. Right. Now, we didn't just forget about Von Braun. He's in charge of basically the entire design arm of NASA at this point in time. And basically he said... You know what? The Soviets are better at getting things into orbit right now. Mm-hmm. I think if we try for the moon, we have a better shot of catching up and beating them at some point. That's fair. Also, he really liked really big rockets. Sure. And You need a big rocket to get to the moon. You need a big rocket to get to the moon. Here's the thing. Korolev had designed really good rockets. I mean, the, the rocket design that he built from scratch mm-hmm. was fantastic. The Redstones, on the other hand, were basically von Braun building on his own previous work, right? And any he was a little bit blind to the weaknesses inherent in that ah, system. Okay, yeah. So, the Korolev rockets—if you look at pictures of of the the rockets throughout the the Soviet uh, program—they don't change that much. They get kind of bigger,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but that's about it. I see The the fundamental design of them stays almost identical. It's basically a single rocket with four boosters stacked around as part of the first stage. Right. Yeah. For, so, for solid state boosters, those at some point fairly early in the in the launch break off mm-hmm. in a formation that's called the Korolev cross, like you can see it oh, from yeah. the launch site like they they break off each one pointing and in one direction. For a trail. Yeah. So those those rockets are, are really solid. They don't do a ton of work on changing those 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 orbital boosters. Mhm they just work they do what they need them to do they leave them alone yep you don't mess with what is already working and von braun is looking at this going you know we're working on the saturn series rockets they're not anywhere close to being ready yet right we can't we can't deploy those yet but if we say let's go to the moon the current russian boosters can't get to the moon right they would have to build something from scratch whereas if we say let's make this first uh, or the next step, of space station. I see. They could get stuff to the orbit fairly they're, easily. They're most
1: of the way there already. At least they've got the first steps down.
0: Essentially, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is where Kennedy kind of steps in. Now, Kennedy was initially against the space program altogether. Okay. He thought it was a waste of money, he thought it was a complete waste of money. He had a lot of bad things to hmm. say about the program in general. And Did he have uh, something that he would rather spend
1: the money on? Like, was he a big military guy or.
0: Well, I mean, he, he was he was more about see, he, he'd he kind of been elected in on a basis of Eisenhower spent too much money on stuff. Oh, I see. Let's let's tighten that belts a little bit. Anything. And then someone comes to him and says, Hey, Apollo program?
1: Yeah, hey, money for the moon.
0: And a lot of analysts believe that if he could have cancelled the space program outright without it hurting the United States, he would have. Ah, okay. Key being without hurting the US. Mm-hmm. He's looking at all of this stuff. The Soviets have put a man in space into orbit, which the, the, the Americans still are having trouble doing. And the just the PR nightmare. He doesn't really have a choice. Uh, you can't just cancel you it. You can't back down. No. There's no way he could have done that gracefully. Mm-hmm. He would have been mocked as an incredibly weak leader for doing that. That's so he decided true. to double down. Yep. He went to Congress to ask for funding for a moon mission. And at the Congress address in May of 1961... He stated that we would be going to the moon by the end of the decade. I love this speech. It's there, there's two separate speeches, just mm-hmm. to, to give you a heads up. That's not the same as the "We Choose to Go to the Moon" speech. I know. Yeah. Yeah. The the we chose to we choose to go to the moon speech was in 1962, September yeah, 1962. I mean. yeah. The the one that and this was delivered at a university. It wasn't even to Congress. Mm-hmm. But this is the one where he says, "Well, we can probably stick in a quick clip of that too."
3: Woo! but why some say the moon? not because they are easy, but because they are hard, because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too.
0: and uh, that's some inspiring stuff right there mm-hmm. it's it's a great speech I mean Kennedy say what you will about him well actually not many people say terrible things about Kennedy yeah, but he's very charismatic he, had, oh, he could give great speeches man his speech writers were just dynamite now Khrushchev decided not to respond there was like complete silence from the Soviet program mm-hmm. which was kind of par for the course at this point in time they didn't issue a lot of statements but I mean, we know with hindsight that they started working on going to the moon as well. Mm-hmm. And I think if any, if any one move out of the entire space race was, you know, beautifully politically crafted, it was this request for funding by Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Because if we had decided that the next step was long-term habitation in low Earth orbit, right. the Soviets would have won it hands down. Yep. No problem. Mm-hmm. This was the only thing that gave the Americans a fighting chance. So it was it was just masterfully done. So
1: they set the goal.
0: Absolutely, they set the goal. Now Vostok three and four launched two days or a day apart, August eleventh and August twelfth, nineteen sixty two, and they managed to match orbits. They came within six and a half kilometers of each other, nice. which is pretty good for a first uh, try at, at rendezvous in in orbit. Mm-hmm. That's super hard to do. Yep. Six and a half kilometers isn't that far. No, not when there's nothing between you. Nope. And they established the first radio communication between two spaceships. Nice. Which, I mean, they were. The, it was the first time two spaceships were in space at the same time. But, mm-hmm. you know, hey, let's let's deal out the firsts where they're... Yeah, sure, why not? Yeah, they, I, I they don't see any reason were not the to. the first to
1: have the opportunity, and they took advantage
0: of it. Absolutely. Uh, Vostok 5 and 6 were also a dual launch uh, in June of 1963. Vostok 6 carried the first civilian and the first woman. Uh, Valentina Tereshkova. Two people or no, no, a no. Civilian woman. She was a, she was a civilian woman. So yeah, I guess it was, that makes sense. She was a double first. <laughs> yeah. Now this again was like straight up PR. They didn't have another woman in space until 1980. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was it was some politician going, "Hey, a woman, why not?
1: Sure, put a lady in there. Put a lady
0: up there. The Americans have done that one. Get that dog one. out of
1: there. <laughs> put a lady in there.
0: <laughs> oh no." <laughs> oh. But, you know, there were th- there were three more Mercury missions. The program pro- wasn't really making any ideological victories. Because the Mercury capsules... Oh, I, I forgot to mention earlier, in 1962, February 1962, John Glenn was the first American to orbit in uh, Friendship 7. Friendship.
1: <laughs> the power of Friendship. Now,
0: that was finally launched on an Atlas launch system. Oh, okay, cool. So... We're not using redstones anymore. Mm-hmm. We're actually using a dedicated launch system that is designed to get things into orbit. Well, that's good. Yeah, good work, everybody. But yeah, as, as I said, there's there's three more Mercury missions, so for a total of six missions. Mm-hmm. But really, they were all they were really doing was getting guys to orbit for a couple of days max, and we then having to bring again. them back down. <laughs> there's nothing that they could really accomplish out of it. Yeah, the the program was was um, was canceled because they weren't. Like it, there was no there was no benefit from it mm-hmm. there was no benefit at all so there were a number of launches that were canceled out of it there were some extra atlas m- missiles kicking around for it you know the the relics of any canceled space program it kind of looks the same
2: mm-hmm.
0: now in september 20th 1963 kennedy proposed a joint u.s soviet space program he and khrushchev were actually fairly close hmm which is kind of weird, but like that's probably also the reason that the Cuban Missile Crisis didn't go worse than it did. Yeah, was that he could talk to Khrushchev on the phone and work things. I've out. I've heard
1: that. I was actually going to ask, like, is the is the hotline thing like an actual thing, or was that oh, just yes. something that was made up for movies to be super dramatic? Because it's always super dramatic.
0: <laughs> no, there was actually a hotline. But if you're calling Khrushchev, there's a problem. You know what I mean? He yeah, didn't.
1: Yeah. He did. You're not him to say hey.
0: <laughs> so what you thinking about?
1: Yeah, it was a weekend. <laughs>
0: No, you hang up first. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that's cute.
0: But I mean, you know, while these while these guys are making their first orbits and things, yeah, that's that's you know, 1962, Cuban Missile Crisis. That's mm-hmm. this is the height of tension in the in the Cold War. That's that's serious stuff. This this proposal to Khrushchev was an attempt to sort of extend a hand, be like, this is getting out of like this is getting crazy. Yeah. We need to cool this down a little bit.
1: We're doing some cool stuff here. Maybe we should figure this out.
0: And the two of them are looking at it going, there's a lot that we can learn scientifically. We can save some costs if we don't develop two completely independent launch systems. Doing the same thing. You know, we have similar goals in these programs. Mm-hmm. We've both established that we can nuke anything on the planet if we want to. Maybe it's time to start looking at this less... As a contest. a contest, and more as a, a chance at a global endeavor towards something a little bit greater. Mm-hmm. And then Kennedy was assassinated in, in November. <laughs> but
2: then,
1: <laughs> oh,
0: two months later, yeah, November 22nd, and 1963.
1: Again, we hate to play historical what if,
0: yeah, that's the worst game. But here's the but thing,
1: god dang.
0: <laughs> but here's the thing Khrushchev didn't like Lyndon B. Johnson. He did not like the guy. He had a lot... Like, just personally, had mm-hmm. a lot of problems with Johnson. Graded on him. Something. They did not get along. Yeah. <laughs> and, again, this is a spot where, you know...
1: You want them to be able to get along, please?
0: <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. That would be very, very nice. But, like, this, this I was going to say, this is another spot where, for once, um, actual individual players really do make a big difference. Okay. Because Kennedy was almost there, convincing yeah. Khrushchev to... to uh, collaborate mm-hmm. on this and it's not going to happen under Johnson it's just not going to happen so now we have both countries they're able to take a guy one guy put him in a capsule fling him into space bring him back down he lives fling <laughs> him everyone cheers mm-hmm. and that's about all they can do with this with this program as is there's no room for growth hmm The Americans are losing. The Americans are losing in that they can't even keep a guy up there as long as the as the Soviets can right now. Right. So stretch goals like trying to keep a guy up there for say three days, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: what's the point? Because the Soviets can do it for longer and already have. They've they've already done it longer than the Mercury capsule was capable of sustaining. You can't keep going like that. Mm -hmm. So both Vostok and Mercury were cancelled. And both countries started looking at what do we need to do to get to the moon? And that's a long road. So I think that's probably a good place to take a break. Mm -hmm. And we'll come back to the actual uh, lunar programs next time. With the ending of Mercury and Vostok... The space race looked quite different than its first tentative steps in the mid-50s. The major milestones of putting an artificial satellite and then a person in space had been met, a finish line had been established, and the political undertones had shifted strongly. It was no longer about subtle threats concerning ICBMs, but rather about which economic and ideologic system could produce the most advanced program, the cooperation and collaboration of communism, or the competition, drive, and industry of capitalism. Next time on HI101, we'll begin by seeing both programs hit their lowest points in 1966, followed by a strong final push to the moon, and an eased intentions. That episode will be out February 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there, that's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Bleski, and this has been HI101.